Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast? British Murders, of course. I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes, as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into, and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash britishmurders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. Welcome to British Murders, a true crime podcast with a focus on British murder cases. My name's Stuart Blues, and I'm excited for you to join me on this journey of morbid discovery. I'm by no means an expert on the subjects of homicide and serial killers, however I have always had a sick fascination with them. Together we will learn about some of the lesser known British murderers, as well as glimpsing occasionally at some of the more notorious ones. The bite-sized presentation of this podcast is intentional, as we look to cover an overview of the respective timelines of each case succinctly. Hello everyone and welcome back to British Murders. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the sixth episode of season three. Before I start I'd like to say thank you to Trina Kelly for buying me three beers on June 25th. That's via buymeacoffee.com slash British Murders. Trina's lovely comment started with a thumbs up emoji. What a great way to start. And then followed it up by saying I look forward to Thursdays and always enjoy the podcast. About time I bought you a beer. I went out for a few drinks the day after you made your generous donation, so it was well spent. Thank you as well to my mate Lorraine Purden, who generously bought me three beers too on June 30th. You didn't have to do that, pal, but it's really appreciated. On this week's show, we're focusing on another serial poisoner, although on this occasion the perpetrator wasn't an elderly lady getting rid of her multiple husbands. The villain in this week's story was actually a male which sort of goes against type for poisoning cases set in the mid to late 20th century. As we always do here on British Murders, let's take a bit of time to look into some historical facts and trivia about one of the locations for today's episode. I decided to look into the area of Neesden, which is located in northwest London. As with last week, this isn't the location of where the crimes in this story took place, rather it's where our subject was born. First of all, the name Neesden, which is spelled N-E-A-S-D-O-N, can be translated as the nose-shaped hill. If you're not familiar with Old English, which for the sake of my explanation, I'll assume you aren't, Naos means nose and Dune means hill. Nose hill. Neesden is known as the loneliest village in London. What a name. Apparently there's just nothing there. From my research, it seems that the locals aren't exactly proud to come from there, and the air just seems to be shrouded in sadness. Heartbreaking. 
Having said that, I've never been, so I can't accurately give my opinion on the place. If anyone is from there and would like to provide me with what it's like to be a resident, uh, please drop me a comment or send me a message on social media. It might be a really nice place. One pretty cool fact is that legendary reggae artist Bob Marley and the Whalers moved to Neesden from Jamaica. To this day, there is a blue plaque on the small detached house that they lived in, which reads, The third world's first superstars, Bob Marley and the Whalers, lived here in 1972. The plaque was unveiled on September 8, 2012 by the Brent Council Federation of Reggae Music, or FORM. I'll be honest, dear listener, that's pretty much it for facts about Neesden. There was something about British satirical magazine Private Eye once being printed there and using the place in some of its issues, but that didn't really interest me. I'm a bit gutted because I love finding out historical stuff, as you know, but we're rather quickly getting straight into the story this week. Maybe that's a positive for anyone who thinks I waffle on too much with my random historical facts section of the show. Our subject today is Graham Frederick Young, who was born to Fred and Bessie Young at Willesden Maternity Hospital at Honeypot Lane on September 7th, 1947. It's now known as Kingsbury Maternity Hospital, but the old name of Willesden was active between 1931 and 1949. Graham's childhood, as with most serial killers, was shock, far from ideal. Imagine if these maniacs actually had some decent parenting and a happy home life. The amount of lives that would have been saved is ridiculous. Maybe I should say could have been saved, because you never know with these people. This couldn't be helped, but Graham's mum developed pleurisy during pregnancy and died of tuberculosis only 12 weeks after giving birth to him. Pleurisy is inflammation of the tissue between your lungs and rib cage. Tuberculosis, or TB, is a bacterial infection that mainly affects the lungs, but it can affect any part of the body. It's spread by inhaling tiny droplets from an infected person's coughs or sneezes. Cover your mouth, people. TB used to be a real problem in the UK. It was rife due to the rise in poverty, poor hygiene and living conditions after the start of the Industrial Revolution. It had become far less common in the mid-19th century, but it's worth noting that even as of 2017, England still had one of the highest rates of TB in Western Europe, with just under 5,200 people affected. TB immunisation jabs used to be mandatory in secondary schools or high schools up until 2005. You may not know how old I am, but I was in high school prior to 2005, so like most UK millennials, I was also vaccinated and still have the scar to this day. You can see it here on the YouTube video, possibly. On my arm there, maybe I'll do a zoom in for this shot. For the audio, guys, it's just a little scar on my arm. (laughs) Anyone that's my age group in the UK will have the same scar. Apparently the scar tissue forms due to fibrosis, which is the name for the development of fibrous connective tissue, as a reparative response to injury or damage. Fibrous, fibrous, I don't know. You know what I mean anyway. Fibrosis is the crack. Coming back to the UK TB figures, around 40% of those affected live in London. Bringing it back now to the story, Graham's mum was a Londoner and died from TB. There's the connection. That was my long-winded point. Now after the death of his beloved wife, Fred decided that he wasn't in a position to look after Graham and his older sister Winifred. He sought the help of his family and asked them to take both kids in. 
Winifred was sent to live with her grandparents, whilst Graham was sent to live with his aunt Winnie. We come back to the point here of a bad start in life, as at the tender age of three months, Graham has already lost his mother, his father is unable to look after him, and he's been sent to live with his aunt and uncle. Over the next two years, Graham formed a very tight bond with Winnie and her husband Jack, though he especially grew close with his aunt. By 1950, only three years after the death of his wife, Fred Young remarried. He then decided that he and his new wife Molly should look to reunite the family as he clearly felt ready to be a father again. I can't quite wrap my head around that one personally, but that's what happened. So he brings Winifred back home from her grandparents and brings Graham back home from his aunt and uncles. Graham was devastated. He displayed several signs of separation anxiety due to the close relationship he had formed with Winnie and Jack. That's understandable as the first two or three years of a child's life is kind of where you imprint on them as a parent or a guardian. It's so hard for me to say the word imprint without thinking of those creepy Twilight films. An already fuming Graham then, to make matters worse, did not get on with his stepmom one bit. He pretty much loathed her. It made for pretty awkward family meals, I imagine. Something else made for pretty awkward family meals too, but I'll come on to that shortly. Once Graham was of reading age, which was like, what, six or seven? Maybe four or five for more advanced children. Whatever age he was, once he started to read regularly, this is where things started to take a turn for the worse. He enjoyed reading true crime books, which clearly weren't appropriate for someone of his age. He was particularly fond of Dr. Hawley Harvey Crippen, who murdered his wife Cora by way of poisoning in 1910. As he grew older, by which I'm referring to his early teenage years, Graham, like many other serial killers, developed a sick fascination with Adolf Hitler. He would regularly read Hitler's 1925 autobiographical manifesto, Mein Kampf, and even went around telling people how the Nazi leader was just misunderstood. There are many words I can think of to describe Hitler, but misunderstood, admittedly, isn't one of them. At the age of 11 or 12, Graham passed his 11 plus exam and received a chemistry set as a reward from his dad and stepmom. The 11 plus exam, by the way, is a test given to students in their last years of primary school. It helps determine their admission into secondary schools, which use academic selection as part of their recruitment program. Graham was a clever kid, but the only subjects that interested him were history and science, with his specific passion being chemistry. Described as a loner, Graham mostly kept to himself both at home as well as at school. He opted instead to brush upon his knowledge and conduct experiments with his chemistry set. In his later years, Graham said the following about his childhood. I seemed to be a misfit when I was young, not like other children. I used to draw within myself. A loner. I read a lot and became obsessed with the macabre. Toxicology always fascinated me. My father married again and I began to experiment. He claimed to have a retentive memory, which basically meant once he'd read something, he wouldn't forget it. The experiments Graham is referring to involved heavy metals, and I'm not talking about Black Sabbath. Throughout April and May 1961, when Graham was just 13, He used to visit the local chemist and he would use his charm and his deep knowledge of chemistry to acquire antimony, digitalis, arsenic and thallium. 
Those are all highly poisonous chemical elements. They're only available to pharmacists and industry experts, but Graham convinced the chemist that he was 17 and that they would be used to conduct scientific experiments. He even signed the poisons register, which was a requirement at the time, and stated that he was at university in order to make everything appear legit. Once he had procured his poisons, it was time for Graham to start experimenting. So what did he experiment on? Rats? Dogs? Cats? No. He experimented on the only friend he had at school, and soon after that, his own family. The one friend I'm referring to was named Christopher Williams. The pair were in the same science class and would regularly eat lunch together. In May 1961, and unbeknownst to Christopher, Graham started regularly slipping antimony into his sandwiches and carefully observed the effects it had on his body. All the while, he was making detailed notes about the symptoms shown in one of his many notebooks. The main symptoms of antimony poisoning are vomiting, stomach cramps and headaches, all of which Christopher suffered from. The problem Graham had though was that he could only administer the poison at school and was unable to track his progress on an evening when he went home. He did once visit London Zoo with Christopher when he was off sick from school, he just thought, let's go to London Zoo together, and he offered him some lemonade, which he told Christopher would relieve him of his symptoms. But what Christopher didn't realise was that the lemonade also had bloody antimony in it. Graham eventually grew tired of not being able to monitor Christopher 24-7 and turned his attention to his family. Makes sense, I guess. He lives with them, so he can not only have access to more than just sandwiches, but he can track their symptoms morning and night. He started off small. The traditional Sunday roast would be spiked with one of Graham's poisons and he would make a note of the effects it had on his family. It's common sense, but let me clarify, Graham didn't eat any of the food that he'd spiked. If he, say, put two grams of antimony in the joint of meat and everyone started throwing up after three hours, he would make a note of that in his diary. He'd put something like two grams equals vomiting after three hours. Some of the longer term effects of antimony, which is added to food by being crushed into a fine powder, are as follows. Stomach cramps, headaches, fever, hair loss, destroyed nerve endings, numbness in the fingers, and a burning feeling like you're walking on hot coals. It would be a very painful way to die, and a slow death it would be too. Throughout the remainder of 1961 and into the start of 1962, Graham continued to conduct his poisonous experiments on his unsuspecting family members. His sister Winifred, who was 22 at that time, became seriously ill in November of 1961 as a result of belladonna poisoning. That's a plant which is also known as deadly nightshade. Graham's father Fred also became ill around that time. Molly, on the other hand, was just constantly ill for 12 months straight. She finally succumbed to the effects of constantly ingesting various poisons on April 21st, 1962. Fred arrived back home to find his wife collapsed in the garden. She was suffering from severe stomach cramps which were bad enough to warrant an ambulance being called. She died in hospital a few hours later. The doctors were confused by Molly's symptoms and her death was ultimately said to have been caused by an old spinal injury she had suffered in 1961 after being involved in a car crash. 
I cannot say spinal without thinking of Mike Tyson. Spinal. She had a spinal injury. After the death of his stepmom, Graham continued to poison his dad and sister. Even Graham's teachers grew suspicious of his behaviour, as he was useless at every other subject apart from chemistry, and everyone he was close to was either severely ill or, in Molly's case, dead. After searching through his school desk one day, Graham's chemistry teacher found several poisons stashed away in it. The teacher called the young family's doctor, who in turn called a psychiatrist, who then called the police. What an odd chain of events that was. Call the police right away, guys, come on. When he was interviewed by the police, Graham couldn't resist showing off his vast knowledge of chemistry and poisons. Perhaps he wanted to feel clever and powerful. In reality, all that happened is that the police started to suspect him as having poisoned his whole family, and they arrested him shortly after. How mad is this? The 14-year-old Graham even had a little dose of poison that he kept in his pocket at all times. He called it his exit dose. Basically, it was his way out through suicide in case a situation such as this ever arose. Unfortunately for him, and for his future victims, he was unable to take it in time. Police searched both his desk at school and his home, finding numerous books relating to poisons and their effects. He even said to the police interviewers, I am interested in poisons. I had nothing to do with my sister's illness. That was caused by shampoo she used the night before. He also admitted to having poisoned Molly a couple of months prior to her death, but stated that his poisonings were not the cause of her death. On July 5th, 1962, Graham pleaded guilty at the Old Bailey to all three of the charges presented to him. The charges were maliciously administering poison to his dad Fred, his sister Winifred, and his friend Christopher Williams. If you're wondering why he wasn't charged with the murder of his stepmom Molly, it's because her body was cremated after she died, so no further tests could be done. Remember, the cause of death was already given as a result of a collapsed bone in her spinal column. During the trial, Graham said, Poison gives me power. A pretty terrifying phrase to hear from an adult, never mind a 14-year-old. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Rather than being sent to prison, Graham was sent to serve 15 years in Broadmoor due to his age and mental health. Dr. Graham Fish, who worked as a senior medical officer, said that Graham needed to be put into maximum security psychiatric care as he suffers from a psychopathic disorder. If you want to hear something which is both chilling and concerning from Dr. Fish, listen to this. He said, I think it is extremely likely that he will re-offend. Graham told me the poisons gave him a sense of power. When he was depressed, he said he was missing his antimony and also said he was missing the power it gives him. He considers himself extremely knowledgeable about poisons and of the amounts likely to be fatal. At times, he was almost patronising with me in this connection and quite ready to correct me. How bad is that? They knew he would re-offend if he was ever released from either prison or care. Even Graham's own defence team said they had no alternative suggestions other than to send him to Broadmoor. Even with all that being said, Graham didn't even serve the full 15 years he was sentenced to. He was released from Broadmoor on February 4th, 1971, 
after serving just short of nine years. What's even crazier, I know this story is so crazy, but what's even crazier than serving less than his full sentence is that whilst in Broadmoor, he had no restrictions placed on him with regards to the books he could read from the library. No surprises here when I tell you that he read hundreds and hundreds of books focusing on toxicology, different poisons and chemistry. The real piss take of it all is that Graham used to conduct experiments within Broadmoor by lacing the communal teapot with stuff like dish soap and cleaning liquid to see what effects it had on the other patients. The guy was literally continuing to poison people within Broadmoor and he still got let out early. Graham even claimed that he was responsible for the death of fellow patient John Berridge after he died from cyanide poisoning a few months after arriving at Broadmoor. Graham said he extracted the cyanide from laurel bushes located on the grounds of the hospital. Despite this admission, the hospital put John Berridge's death down as a suicide. How many chances do you need to put someone away for murder? If you're interested in the scientific process of how to extract cyanide from the laurel bushes, apparently when you trim a laurel hedge, the trimmed hedging starts to produce cyanide. Victorian-era Britons used to conduct experiments by placing a laurel leaf in a jar and putting a butterfly in with it. The butterfly would eventually die due to the cyanide being given off by the leaf. There are stories to this day of people who trimmed their laurel hedges, put the trimmings in the back of the car, and when they drove to the tip or the dump, they complained of having headaches. That's because their brains were being starved of oxygen due to the build-up of cyanide being given off by the trimmings. The best way to get rid of the trimmings from what I could find would be to burn them in a garden incinerator. Then again, I'm no Alan Titchmarsh, so take my gardening advice with a pinch of salt. Coming back to Graham Young, he eventually cottoned on to the idea that if he behaved himself and acted like a model patient, he would likely be let out of Broadmoor. He did just that. He even convinced his personal psychiatrist, Dr. Edgar Udwin, that he was of no danger to other people and should be given the opportunity to be reintroduced back into society. Dr. Udwin's release recommendation was backed by Broadmoor's medical superintendent, Dr. Patrick McGrath, who then forwarded it on to the Home Office, who accepted their advice. Graham was now a free man, and he started poisoning people straight away. He stayed in a hostel and, in a bizarre turn, regained contact with Winifred, his sister. She was clearly over the whole being poisoned by her brother thing. No biggie. As we move on now to the portion of the story relating to the crimes Graham was convicted of as an adult... Let me just warn you, there's a fair few victims here, and the details of each can be a touch confusing to understand. I'll portray them in a timeline in the least convoluted way possible. After procuring more antimony, thallium, and whatever else he could get his hands on from the chemist in London, Graham set about choosing his first guinea pig, shall we say. I say that rather than victim, as most of the people he experimented on with poison survived the ordeal. They are still victims, of course they are, but I mean murder victims. Graham decided that he first needed to seek some form of employment. This would not only give him a new source of income, presumably with which to purchase more poisons, but it would also give him a huge catalogue of individuals to use as his test subjects. He managed to secure a role as an assistant storekeeper with John Hadland Photographic Instrumentations Limited. What shocked me is that the business was well aware that Graham had spent several years in Broadmoor, 
though they weren't told of his history and proclivity towards poisons. That's good and bad. It shows that they're trying to help someone who's in theory been rehabilitated. In this circumstance, he just hadn't. Now, I don't know about you, but I probably wouldn't employ someone who'd spent nine years nearly at Britain's most notorious mental hospital for the criminally insane. Maybe I am just being a touch judgmental. I mean, I would at least have done a scrutinous background check on him. Given what happened with the business's employees after they hired Graham, I'm sure in hindsight they thought the same as me. The business was a photography supply firm based in Bovingdon, a village in Hertfordshire, located just over 20 miles northwest of Neesden. An interesting fact about thallium, one of Graham's poisons of choice, is that it's a constituent of glass used in making photographic lenses. You might think, hang on a minute. He's managed to secure himself a job whereby he can extract thallium from the glass they use to make lenses? Well, in this case, that wasn't an issue. The company didn't make their own lenses. They bought them in pre-made. If Graham wanted to extract thallium from the pre-made lenses, it would have been an incredibly complicated and time-consuming process. There's no doubt he'd have been more than capable of doing it, but it would have been a lot of time and effort wasted when he could just blag what he needed from a chemist. Blag is just a slang term. It means to obtain something by trick or by deception. To blag what he needed, as I so eloquently put it, simply means to use his charm in order to convince the chemist to give him what he wanted. So everything was now set in place. Graham had a job. He had his poisons. He had a large number of unwitting test subjects. And he also had several notebooks in which he could make notes and track his progress. You'll have noticed this episode's title is The Teacup Poisoner. That's because our Graham always used to offer to make cups of tea and coffee for his colleagues. Between February 8th, 1971 and April 30th, 1971, Graham poisoned a man named Trevor Sparks. He soon fell ill and suffered with severe stomach cramps similar to Graham's previous victims. One source said the 34-year-old was another hostel guest, but another source said he was a fellow student who was on the same training course as Graham. Regardless of how Graham knew him, he had administered the poison with the intent of causing grievous bodily harm. Granted, this person wasn't a work colleague, but given the fact he started poisoning him only four days after being released from Broadmoor, it's a logical assumption that he hadn't secured his new job at that point. It's worth noting too that Trevor was the only victim who wasn't one of Graham's colleagues. Between May 10th 1971 and July 9th 1971, Graham administered poison to 41-year-old Ronald Hewitt. Ronald, or Ron as he was more commonly known, had actually stayed in his role in order to show Graham the ropes as he was due to leave the business. How savage is that? You say you're leaving your job, but then you decide you'll help them out by teaching the new guy everything he needs to know in order to carry out your old responsibilities. And the new guy ends up slowly poisoning you every day for two months. The worst part is that Ron probably thought he had it made, seeing as though Graham was constantly making him cups of tea. In total, Ron went through 12 separate bouts of illness as a result of Graham's poisoning, which included him developing diarrhoea and having sharp stomach pains. On one occasion, he even recalls his throat burning after drinking one of Graham's spiked cups of tea. Red alert flag or what? No tea I've ever drank is so hot that it burns my throat for a period after, and I drink my tea when it is very hot. I even burn 
my lips the other day because it was too hot, but it was in a flask and I didn't let it cool down like an idiot. Absolutely killed. Ron's symptoms stopped when he finally left the business. During that same time period, Graham was also administering poison to his boss, 59-year-old Robert, or Bob Eagle. His poison of choice this time was thallium, which up until that point had never been used before as a poison in Great Britain. Like with the previous victims, Bob had severe stomach cramps and also suffered from dizzy spells. Bob did recover when he went on holiday, which makes total sense as Graham wasn't there to spike his fancy cocktails, but his symptoms soon came back once he'd returned to work. Talk about the Monday blues. His symptoms worsened to the point where his fingers went numb and he was in excruciating pain every time he moved. He was eventually taken to hospital on June 27th, 1971, but sadly he never recovered. He was basically paralysed and unable to speak. He died in hospital on July 7th, 1971, 10 days after being admitted. Bob's post-mortem didn't reveal what had caused him to become paralysed, though the medical examiner did mention there were similarities with heavy metal poisoning. That being said, the cause of death was officially put down as bronchial pneumonia, arising from an unusual type of polyneuritis known as the Guillain-Barré syndrome. Let me quickly break down those medical terms for you. Bronchial pneumonia appears to be another name for bronchitis, which is an infection of the main airways of the lungs, which causes them to become irritated and inflamed. Ain't nobody got time for that. Polyneuritis is a disorder affecting several peripheral nerves, especially when thought to be of inflammatory origin. And finally, Guillain-Barré syndrome is a very rare and serious condition that affects the nerves. It mainly affects the hands, feet and limbs causing problems such as numbness, weakness and pain. The syndrome is named after the French neurologists Georges Guillain and Jean-Alexandre Barré, <laughs> who described the condition in 1916. My French accent is spot on, isn't it? Back to our poisoning timeline now. During the time of Bob's death, there was a virus going around the local school which was making the children sick. It was known as the Bovingdon Bug so it's logical to think that some of the adults may have been suffering from it too, given the fact that thallium poisoning was an unknown quantity at the time and the symptoms of Graham's victims were baffling medical staff. Between September 10th, 1971 and September 30th, 1971, Graham administered poison to Peter Buck. During that same time period, he also poisoned 60-year-old Fred Biggs. We'll come back to Fred later in the timeline. Throughout October 1971, starting on the 8th, Graham poisoned David Tilson, Jethro Batt and Diana Smart, who was a receptionist at the firm. Diana had allegedly confided in the firm's managing director, Godfrey Foster, saying that she suspected Graham was a germ carrier. Her concerns at the time were ignored. If we come back to Fred Biggs, his symptoms became increasingly severe to the point where he was admitted to the National Hospital for Nervous Diseases in London. He was there for a while, but his condition only got worse. He very slowly succumbed to the excruciating effects of thallium poisoning and eventually died on November 19, 1971. The similarities between Fred Biggs and Bob Eagle's respective deaths were frightening. It was also reported that around 70 employees in total had suffered from similar symptoms. Graham shocked the on-site doctor when he raised concerns as to why the cause of the staff's illnesses 
wasn't considered to be thallium poisoning. What a strange thing to confront him about. Thallium is something which, up until that point, had never been used to poison someone in Great Britain. And this lad's saying, Yeah, how come you've not considered thallium poisoning, Doc? What are you on about, mate? Just clearly shot himself in the foot. That was ultimately what led to his arrest. Further forensic investigations took place which revealed that thallium poisoning was indeed the cause. Graham Young was arrested on November 21st, 1971 and charged two days later with the murder of Fred Biggs after he was found to have thallium on his person. Apparently he admitted that he had poisoned his colleagues to the police when he was interrogated but refused to sign a confession. He wanted to make sure the case went to court in order to increase his notoriety further. After appearing in front of magistrates over 10 times after his arrest, Graham's trial finally began on June 19th, 1972. He had 10, count them, 10 charges against him, which included the poisoning of eight colleagues and the murder of both Fred Biggs and Bob Eagle. The thing the prosecution struggled with was Graham's motive. With the exception of his bosses, who he may have loathed due to their higher positions in power, Graham was said to be fond of most of his colleagues. He was simply using them as guinea pigs for his twisted experiments and logging all of his findings in notebooks. One notebook entry read, In a way, it seems a shame to commit such a likeable man to such a horrible end. But I have made my decision, and therefore he is doomed to premature decease. Another read, News from other fronts, F, assumed to mean Fred Biggs, is now seriously ill. He is unconscious and it is likely he will decline in the next few days. It will be a merciful release for him, as if he should survive, he will be permanently impaired. It is better that he should die. It will remove one more casualty from the crowded field of battle. What is he on about? Graham pleaded not guilty to all ten charges, ridiculous seeing as though he's sort of told them in the interrogation that he's done it, and he claimed the diary was simply a fantasy for a novel he was working on. It baffles me the excuses they come up with when under pressure, just to refuse to admit what they've done. What's messed up is that Graham had the knowledge and expertise to willingly choose who lived and who died. He's like Jigsaw from the Saw films. He knew the exact amounts of each poison to give people in order to either make them just a little bit sick or for them to die an excruciating, long, drawn-out death. The only real motive appeared to be for power and to feel godlike. When Thallium was determined to be the cause of death in the two victims, it was a shock to everyone. Thallium was an ingredient in rat poison, but not in the UK. The effect it has on the human body is pretty scary. The body gets rid of it very slowly, so it has the effects of what is known as an accumulative poison. Some of the common symptoms are hair loss, thickening and scaliness of the skin, lines on the fingernails, stomach pain, sickness and diarrhea, degeneration of the nerve fibres, weakness of the limbs leading to paralysis and delirium, and breathing difficulty. Bob Eagle was given 18 grains of thallium across two doses and died. Fred Biggs was given 18 grains of thallium across three doses and died. Jethro Bat was given four grains of thallium, he survived. David Tilson was given five to six grains of thallium, he survived. Imagine he's making notes of this each time, 
This amount kills a person, this amount doesn't. Four of the other surviving victims were given antimony as opposed to thallium, and it was revealed in court that Diana Smart, the firm's receptionist, was found by Graham to be irritating in the extreme. He wrote in his notebook one day, Di irritated me yesterday, so I packed her off home with a dose of illness. Graham Young was found guilty of all ten charges and sentenced to life imprisonment on June 29th, 1972. Disturbingly, it came to light that Graham became close with Ian Brady, one of the Moore's murderers. I cover the case of Ian Brady and Myra Hindley in my season one special, if you're interested in that story. The two killers bonded over their mutual love of National Socialism and Adolf Hitler. Graham was described by Brady in his 2001 book, The Gates of Janus, as genuinely asexual, finding even discussion of sexual matters not only uninteresting, but also distinctly distasteful. Power and death were his aphrodisiacs, and raison d'autre. Again, Christ knows if I'm saying that right. Graham Young died of a myocardial infarction, the posh term for a heart attack, at Parkhurst Prison on August 1st, 1990. He was 42 years old. And that was the story of British murderer Graham Young. In 1995, a film called The Young Poisoner's Handbook was released based on the story of Graham Young. It starred Irish actor Hugh O'Connor in the lead role portraying Graham. The most popular true crime book based on the events of this episode was also released in 1995 and titled The St. Albans Poisoner, Life and Crimes of Graham Young. It was written by Anthony Holden. What do you think of this case? It's a really bizarre one in that the motives weren't clear, though I'm sure Graham's difficult early life played a huge part in how he grew into who he later became. I'd love to hear your thoughts in the YouTube comments or via social media. A huge shout out goes to Season 1, Episode 2 of documentary series Fred Dynage Murder Casebook, which focuses on the life and crimes of Graham Young. It was very useful with regards to my research for this episode and I highly recommend you check it out. If you'd like more on British murders, you can visit me on all the social medias. I've got my link tree in the description and I'm on YouTube, of course. If you're not watching this, then you can watch it. If you are watching it, hello. You can buy merchandise at Teespring. I've actually got a sale on at the moment until July 19th. It's um, 5% off all items if you use the promo code British. I've also recently reduced all the prices on there. I don't make a profit from merch. I just want to see people wearing my merchandise because I think that's just cool. If you do buy any, thank you. And please send me a picture of you wearing it. I'll make sure to feature you on social media. I'll give you a shout out in an episode as well. Someone recently bought some merch. I don't know who it was, but thank you for buying the t-shirt. If you want to support the show, you can do that on a one-off basis via buy me a coffee like Trina and Lorraine did at the start of the episode, as I mentioned. Or you can do it monthly by going on to Patreon slash British Murders. Again, link in the description. And that way you can sort of access episodes a day early. You can get them ad-free. There's a couple of perks on there. All the funds I get from either Patreon, buy me a coffee or the pennies I get from merch. It just goes back into the show's research and production. You can email me a case suggestion. I'd love to hear from you. The email is britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or hit me up on social media. If you want to give us a review, that would be appreciated. iTunes and Podchaser are the ones for that. But for now, that does it for another episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio. Cheerio.